Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Barb McQuaid, Jill Winebanks, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. Joyce is away, but she'll be back soon. Today, we will be discussing the mounting legal problems for Donald Trump, also the newest legal troubles for Senator Bob Menendez, as well as how law firms are dealing with the new challenges to DEI programs. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. And just in case our listeners hear a bit of ambient noise on this podcast, it's because we are so committed to making sure we bring you a show every week that uh, two-thirds of the current sisters-in-law on this episode are in airports because we are we are traveling and this is literally the only hour we could find to record this how you doing, Barb? You, you still um, on time? You know, I think so. I am at the LaGuardia Airport, where uh, you may have seen photos. There knee-deep flooding in parts of the airport, but uh, it appears that my flight back to Detroit is on time. So I'm going to curl up in a comfortable airport chair and enjoy the next hour or so talking with my sisters. Comfortable, and I want to say, comfortable and airport chair do not <laughs> go together ever. But you guys are brave. I probably am a bit more comfortable. I am at Boston Logan Airport after a delay. Uh, I am coming here. Y'all know that Boston is my home away from home. Uh, But I just didn't have time to get to my hotel. So I, too, am still at the airport recording this podcast. Jill, you look comfy in your home. Yeah, you sure do. (laughs) I am. Yes. I hate to make you guys feel bad, but I have the comfort of Brisby, a nice chair, no water under my feet. So I'm I'm really good. But I admire the two of you for bearing with this and doing this on your phones and however else you're doing it. Barb is standing in line waiting to get through security. It's amazing. Hey, T- TSA man. Don't, Barb, do you don't need to me, TSA man? I'm, I'm talking to the sisters. Now. <laughs> don't talk bad to him or he will. Don't do that. And besides, in 36 hours, he's going to not be there. So be grateful that he's there. Say thank you yes, for your service. I'm grateful to all oh my the workers who are on the job. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. And I hope you're wearing your wellies, Barb. Yeah, I'm going to need them. <laughs> this week, Donald Trump suffered huge losses in New York Attorney General Letitia James's civil fraud case against him, his sons, others, and the shell companies owning his real estate holdings, including Trump Tower in New York and Chicago, Mar-a-Lago, and more. There's a lot to cover, so let's dive right in. Barb, I'm going to ask you the first question before you go through TSA, and that is, he lost his motion for summary judgment, but Attorney General James won her motion for summary judgment for one of the seven charges against him. 
it's rare to get a summary judgment granted. So talk about the rarity and why the attorney general won. And if you can include some of the uh, great language that Angeron used in his Yeah, opinion. so the, the judge is Judge Angeron, as you said. And summary judgment really is uh, a decision by a judge that says there are no factual disputes here for a jury or in this case, a judge in a bench trial to have to decide. We've been able to decide this case on the documents. And by reviewing the documents, the judge was able to include to conclude that the allegations by the attorney general were accurate. And they could tell that Donald Trump had overvalued his properties to the tune of $2.2 million. And so in representations to mortgage companies to get loans uh, and banks to insurers, he had overstated the value of various properties. You know, for example, I think the most egregious one is overstating the value of his apartment in Trump Tower, saying that the square footage was 30,000, when in fact it's 10,000. And these are verifiable facts that were misstated in his statement of wealth that was used when these companies, these financial institutions, were deciding whether to make certain loans or provide insurance coverage. And so the judge found against him and said a number of things, Jill, as you point out, finding not only was this an egregious violation of the law, but that the lawyers had advanced uh, really frivolous arguments and had simply repeated again and again arguments he told them he had already decided against. And so um, he did use some colorful language in uh, ruling against them, saying that, you know, the arguments bordered on the absurd, uh, that the arguments were frivolous. Um, and really, he said, yeah, I was going to just help you out there. It was preposterous, obstreperous, bogus, uh, that he also said he felt like he was in a loop of Groundhog Day because they were making the same arguments he had already rejected, that they were in a fantasy world. Yeah. I mean, quite amazingly strong language. I loved um, obstreperous. <laughs> I don't think I heard that word before, but now I'm going to use it all the time. Really? Obstreperous. Oh, my no, God. No, I don't think I did. Oh, so maybe a generational thing. It's In my generation, we used to use that. I love it. So, yeah. So, Kim, there are a lot of counts against him. This was only summary judgment on one. And um, tell us what happens next. What's, what's going to happen with the other six and everything else? Yeah, so there are, as you said, still six remaining charges against Donald Trump, his, adu his adult children, uh, and others, as well as questions about uh, the, the valuation of damages, what, what kind of uh, potential penalties they can face. And so all those issues move forward to trial. But the, the summary judgment, when we, I can't state enough how ground shaking that was because the fraud is at the center of all of the charges, right? The the behavior that he has already been found as a matter of law to have engaged in is at the center of it. So I think you're going to see um, the defense really have to scramble here and try to decide what sort of defenses they may put forward, what, what defenses are even available to them. Because to win on summary judgment, the judge is basically saying, it doesn't matter what defense you mount. The, what has been alleged here is so clear that no defense that you can mount can can defend against it. So as a matter of law, the attorney general wins. So I think that the attorneys are probably scrambling right now to figure out what to do. They certainly don't want to draw the additional ire of the judge in this case, who has already admonished them 
for basically making nonsense defense claims up until this point and try to limit losses as much as they can. So, Kim, you just mentioned, and Barb has already alluded to the fact that the lawyers were sanctioned uh, in this case. And this is getting to be a quite common result for lawyers who represent Donald Trump. But talk about what happened in this case and what it means going forward. So in addition to imposing orders against Donald Trump, the judge in this case imposed sanctions on the lawyers. You know, lawyers in uh, cases representing individuals get a lot of leeway to make arguments, even creative arguments. But those arguments have to be grounded in fact. And once a judge rules on your decision, unless you are raising new facts for them or arguments not appropriately considered, um, you're supposed to stop. And what the judge said in this case is because these lawyers continued to advance these legal theories that he had already rejected and he was tired of it, as you said, he referred to it as Groundhog Day. He imposed sanctions on these lawyers of seventy five hundred dollars. Now, it's not the biggest number in the world, but it's not nothing. And it sends a message. I think you know, judges are so loath to impose sanctions because, you know, they don't want to discourage lawyers from making good faith arguments if they exist and representing their clients. And, you know, let me uh, let me be a lawyer. Let me represent my client is something you hear lawyers say from time to time. It's really quite extraordinary to see a judge impose sanctions whatsoever. So seventy five hundred dollars would be a lot of money for me. And for most lawyers, it is. And I think it sends a real shot across the bow that this judge is not going to tolerate these kinds of frivolous, repeated arguments that have already been rejected. I I agree. And I think that it means that they're on warning that they better be careful for the rest of the trial. But besides the attorney sanctions, Kim, there were severe penalties imposed um, in his decision on the summary judgment. So if you can, talk about what Judge Engeron ordered and what the cancellation of certificates to do business in New York means. (laughs) Yeah, it means that basically everything that Donald Trump has done for decades and everything he values and everything he derives his worth in outside of the White House uh, could end. His businesses are all done, uh, mostly established and done in New York City. And the inability to do business there means that all of that comes to an end. I think you've seen the memes uh, on social media about, you know, what Trump Tower will be named after this and things like that. It's important to know that most of Donald Trump's Trump properties, he does not actually own them. He actually has a licensing agreement to put his name on them, but he will not under under his LLC be able to do that anymore. But one interesting thing that I think about this when I think of LLC, LLC stands for Limited Liability corporation, right? So one way that Donald Trump has remained um, in business as long as he has, even though, you know, fraud and, and you know, failures in business have been uh, a steady part of his uh, professional life is because he usually is able to sue people or file for bankruptcy to get out of trouble when he gets in trouble. And he's able to do that through his businesses, through his LLCs, so that none of that affects him personally. If those LLCs are dissolved, he can no longer use them as a shield against liability or as a shield to try to get himself out of trouble if he faces some sort of legal peril. So it also really removes a massive defense that he has already had legally to having to pay up when he is found of wrongdoing. It it is amazing. This is probably everything he's ever cared about in his life 
being evaporated. And in addition to saying that the certificate should be canceled, the judge also ordered that each side recommend three potential independent receivers to manage the dissolution of the canceled LLCs. And he gave a continued role to retired Judge Barbara Jones, who is already monitoring the operations of the Trump organization. Um, She is probably familiar to our listeners because she was the one who uh, reviewed Rudy Giuliani's and Michael Cohn's documents for privilege early on in what seems like years ago. Um, She's amazing. Um, She was the chair of the Pentagon Committee I served on looking at sexual assault in the military. So I got to know her and I respect and admire her. And I know she's going to do a good job as they look at the dissolution, which means they could sell all of this to pay the fines. And of course, we don't know how big the fine will be in this case, um, but the attorney and we general don't, has we asked for we don't know the valuation, the actual valuation <laughs> of all of his properties. But it's also important to know there is precedent for this. There's precedent for this with Trump. Remember when he was sued for misusing his charities by the New York attorney general, they said that he can no longer have charity. So, and, and everyone involved in that case. So Ivanka, Donald Trump, they cannot go set up charities in New York city anymore because they've abused that right from the previous settlement. So there is, there is actual uh, precedent for this within the Trump family. And if I remember correctly, they aren't even allowed to serve on the boards of charities because of their bad behavior. So Barb, uh, Trump also lost his motion to delay the trial. So it's going to actually start on Monday. And talk about the witness list from both sides and whether Trump will testify as he's claiming he will or whether he'll even be in the Yeah, this is fascinating. So, you know, a lot of this will be about the valuation of assets. There will be experts who will come in and try to help the judge uh, determine what is the actual value of these properties. Uh, You know, there have been estimates of the range, and we know that uh, based on the judge's finding, there have been gross overstatements. But experts will, in real estate will help the judge to determine what these things are really worth. But the fascinating name on the witness list, as you point out, Jill, is Donald Trump himself on his own witness list says he's going to testify. Now, when you put forward a witness list, it really is only the people you may call, not the people you will call. And you're not committed to calling anybody who shows up on your witness list. I would be stunned if Donald Trump actually gets on the stand under oath and testifies in this case, because uh, it, it would be just a recipe for disaster for him uh, to talk about the value of these properties. Uh, you know, in, when he gets interviewed, you see the way he just sort of meanders from topic to topic and says a lot of things with uh, variable degrees of truthfulness. And so, you know, in court, truth matters and a lawyer is going to pin you down to specifics. Um, and, and I just can't imagine that he would have the discipline to do that. So I'd be surprised if he actually testifies. Although he's also on the list of the prosecution, and he has been deposed, and he can't get out of that. They can use that. And so he might be forced to testify. Yeah, and remember, this is the thing where um, he can take the fifth so that things can't be used against him in a criminal case. But if he takes the fifth in a civil case, the fact that he took the case— That took the fifth can be used as an adverse inference that the answer would have been unfavorable. So that's sort of an interesting dynamic in a civil case like this one. Barb, can his social media posts be entered as evidence? Because he's out there saying, oh, Mar-a-Lago is worth 50 billion dollars and they're totally wrong. (laughs) 
Yes, all of that is. You know, anything. It's it's why lawyers always tell their clients to not speak about the matter when uh, they are either under criminal indictment or involved in civil litigation. Because anything you say in the public domain, what you say to your friends, what you say on social media, what you say publicly. All of that is fair game. And so it's quite possible that we'll see the attorney general's office, you know, offer big, big blow ups on the screen of truth, social posts and other kinds of things. So last question to you, Kim, Um, as a former civil litigator, talk about the fact that this is a non jury trial. What does that mean? How did it happen? What's the consequences? Yeah. So in civil cases, there is uh, the option in most cases if the parties agree to have a case tried by a judge as opposed to a jury. There can be a lot of advantages to that, tends to move faster. It can take out some of the, um, a little bit of the uncertainty about it. And it's usually a move that is seen to be favorable often to the uh defendant in this case, uh, as opposed to the plaintiff. I'm not sure based on what we've seen um, that it's helping Donald Trump out that much. But I'm sure one thing that we will see as a result is that undoubtedly, if more things go wrong, if he is found liable on more charges, he will go after this judge and attack him, which is a problem. Um, And so, you know, but it is something it's I don't think it's terribly unusual. I, I, we have, in my time of practicing, there were some cases that were um, bench trials, which is what you call it when it goes before a judge with no jury. Bench trials are not entirely unusual, but I think this was probably a move uh, that his attorneys agreed to because they're, you know, they're throwing everything at the wall and they thought perhaps there would be a benefit there, but it doesn't seem like it's happening so far. I had one bench trial, and it turned out to be before a judge who was found guilty in Operation Greylord, which was the judicial integrity investigation here in Illinois. So it was quite interesting to have that outcome. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Well, U.S. Senator Robert Menendez and his wife were charged last week in a bribery scheme. The alleged plot involved interfering in criminal investigations by the New Jersey Attorney General and the New Jersey U.S. Attorney, and even assisting the government of Egypt by sharing sensitive information. Of course, these are all allegations. A person is presumed innocent, but these charges are very serious, especially in light of the fact that it includes information that during a search of Senator Menendez's home, federal agents found $430,000 in cash, a Mercedes sports car, and some gold bars, including bars that were traceable by serial number to one of the alleged bribers, and an envelope of cash with the fingerprints of one of the other alleged bribers. So the evidence looks uh, very serious. And Jill, let let me ask you, you know, Senator Menendez has maintained his innocence, 
And he's actually beat a federal case before. So can you remind us about that case? And do you think he might find that experience to be empowering to go to trial in this case? So, yeah, it's really interesting because that case was a completely unrelated and separate um, case. It was in Florida with a donor who was a longtime supporter of his. Um, and it went to trial several years after the indictment and ended in a mistrial. Um, and then the U.S. attorney had a chance to retry him, but decided not to retry him. So you would think that that might give him some hope that he can overcome this too. But I think that the evidence in this case, and you've mentioned in your introduction some of the dramatic pieces of evidence that were found that link him to bribers. So I don't know how how much this will actually result in him getting away with this. And as you said, these are only allegations. We don't know what his defense will be. And he has made very clear that he intends to uh, very strongly uh, defend himself and he will not resign. He was forced off the uh, chairmanship of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but he has said he will not resign from the Senate. So um, it, it will be interesting, totally different facts and um, but the same sort of allegations of bribery. So, Kim, one angle about this case that came out recently is the notion that these charges are not just about accepting bribes, but could also be about compromising national security because of those allegations about assisting the government of Egypt. Do you think the indictment goes so far as to allege a breach of loyalty to the United States? Well, I think that it could. One of the pieces of information that um, was really gobsmacking to me in the reporting of what the senator is alleged to have done in terms of giving sensitive information to Egyptian officials is information about the alleged assassins of uh, the late Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, um, about whether or not they stopped in Egypt en route, p- potentially to pick up whatever they used to poison him. And so that is really serious stuff. I can see why there are national security implications if that's the type of information that was being shared. And I think that that is something that uh, the 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 government would be highly uh, interested in. And I think that could be a central part of this. So this, just to underscore, this is not just, you know, turning the other way at a no-show, you know, union job or something like that. These are really serious allegations that get to the heart of exactly what a politician is not supposed to do, which is be corrupt, trade favors, uh, use his position in order to enrich himself. And I think that is one reason, especially if this is the second time he's brought up on these charges, that this is a really big deal. And I think you're seeing the political implications of it, which we'll talk about a little later. Yeah. One other that struck me was, you know, he is the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And in that role, he's privy to a lot of sensitive government information. And one of them that he's alleged to have provided to the government of Egypt is the staffing at the U.S. Embassy in Cairo, which, right. you know, could could compromise uh, U.S. interests there. So um, really, really interesting angle in the case. Um, you know, Jill, in, in public corruption cases in recent years, we have seen this Supreme Court 
really gut some of the theories that have been used by prosecutors in public corruption cases. You know, we've seen cases like Skilling, which was part of the Enron case, um, Virginia Governor McDonnell, uh, Bridgegate, which was, uh, you know, staffers of Chris Christie when he was governor of New Jersey, who shut down some freeway lanes to punish the mayor of Fort Lee, New Jersey, for not endorsing Chris Christie for governor. Um, and they've really narrowed the scope of some of the theories of public corruption that really almost now has to be tied for, you know, money in exchange for an official act. Do you think that that narrowing of the legal theories could be problematic in this case? Or do you think these allegations overcome any of the problems that existed in those cases? So uh, the short answer is, I think that the facts here do overcome it. But before I go on to explain why, I just wanted to say, um, Kimberly mentioned the fact that there were no show union jobs in other cases. Well, there was in this one too. Uh, Senator Menendez's wife had a no-show job that she got paid for at a halal certification company. Uh, so even that is there. But in terms of the Supreme Court, yeah, they've really, really pulled back on what constitutes public corruption. And they would say that they are trying to make sure that ordinary acts that a member of Congress, senator or representative, or the governor, as in the case of McConnell, or of a corporation, in the case of Skilling, um, that the ordinary things they do as constituent services to a donor, even to someone who donates to them, cannot be barred from their doing it. But I think in this case versus in McDonald or Skilling or Bridgegate um, show that there were specific official acts that Senator Menendez did in exchange for the Mercedes, in exchange for the gold bars, in exchange for his wife getting that no-show job, in exchange for the cash, that they have very specific provable links between the acceptance of what can only be called a bribe and the doing of a particular act. Um, there is, um, you know, there's been an amendment to the law that even after the amendment, uh, the court has ruled that honest services fraud in a corporate case is where there's no financial damage, financial loss, no bribery or kickback, uh, is not valid. And it is provable that there were official acts here, I think. And so that is why I think it will overcome all of the limitations already in place. And I also want to mention that I think Congress is and should be looking at how to uh, define uh, bribery or official acts beyond the way it is currently defined, which limits it very much. And But even under the narrow definition that we now have, I think that uh, Menendez interfering with the lawsuits and the investigations falls within an official act. Um, and of course, as you said, the sharing of information with the Egyptian government. And also the fact that he's getting money. I mean, I think yeah. that the biggest difference in honest services is in some of those other cases involving the former governor of Virginia and, and, and others, Chris Christie uh, with Bridgegate is that there wasn't a quid pro quo per se, that there, he didn't benefit right. in that. We got gold bars yeah. in this case. Like, yeah. I think that clears the hurdle. There's even an allegation in the indictment that Menendez did a Google search for the value of gold bars. Ooh. Oh, he's so right. bad at this. 
Yeah, you know, pro tip, if you're going to take bribes, don't take them in the form of traceable serial numbers on gold bars. Oof. <laughs> As alleged, as alleged. Well, Kim, let me just ask you one last question then about this. I mean, as Jill suggested earlier, a number of uh, Senate uh, Democrats are calling on Menendez to resign his Senate seat. Um, That seems like a rare move these days, you know, in this post-shame world where people sort of circle the wagons, members of their own party. Uh, So quite extraordinary that these Senate Democrats are calling on him to resign. Um, why do you think they're not rallying to his defense? I mean, he said he's not going anywhere, but I, I find it really interesting that they're not rallying to his defense, but to the contrary, urging him to resign. Yeah, and and the dam seemed to break on that uh, fairly quickly. I mean, I had, I was talking to Senator Elizabeth Warren for a completely unrelated column. Oh, what a name dropper. And I love, <laughs> you guys having lunch or something? I do write for the Boston Globe. She's part of the c- congressional uh, delegation. But I asked her in that, it's like, by the way, do you think that Senator Menendez should resign? And usually that's the kind of question that, you know, someone may equivocate. And she said, yes. It's like she just wow. said, yes, full stop, wow. period. And I, it surprised me. Um, it seemed that this week a lot of senators just realized, look, enough is enough. Corruption is a bad look. How can particularly Democrats uh, try to, you know, decry what Donald Trump has done if their own house isn't clean. Right. And, and I think just the, 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 just the gravity of this indictment made it very difficult for a lot of them to sort of um, stay on the sidelines. And it's also a big distraction, right? He's on, he is on the Senate finance committee. He's an important position and the Senate is so evenly divided that there's just no room to have someone in there who is accused of this sort of bribery. As, as the Senator told me, he needs to focus on his legal defense. He's, he should be busy yeah. right now. And yeah, uh, well, he's got other things to do. Exactly. So he should focus on that right now. Yeah. And besides that, Kim, don't you think that you could make the argument in light of these national security allegations that he, he might, I mean, there are allegations, but he, he might, might be compromised. Be to blackmail, right? Yeah, he might. He very well might be compromised. So I think that alone is ground. Now, what I think is funny is some of the I think Tom Cotton and some other Republicans that are like, he deserves his day in court. He's innocent until proven <laughs> yeah. guilty. I'm like, that's real convenient. That's real convenient. Yeah. That's a cute little move. Yeah. So one question that the Supreme Court left unanswered after its ruling striking down affirmative action last term is what it means for corporate workplaces. Republicans and those opposed to diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts say the ruling means those efforts are unconstitutional. But others, including former Attorney General Loretta Lynch, and former Department of Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson have another take. Jill, what are these former cabinet members up to? Well, they're not alone. They're joining a large group of lawyers, including my old law firm, Jenner and Block, who have created DEI practices or task forces or strike forces within their law firms to help their corporate uh, clients um, to deal with what may be coming, which is lawsuits to stop them from any kind of DEI efforts. And it's 
interesting how the practice is developing because so far the solutions that are pretty mild and vague, um, both Lynch and Johnson were head of a New York bar uh, activity to bring in a lot of law firms to talk about how to solve this. And they came up with what I would consider to be not really actionable, detailed plans of action, which is what it's going to take. But um, I think it's the argument mostly is there's an economic value to diversity. And it's been proven that the more diverse you are, the more you can market and sell to a diverse audience. And I think that will go a long way toward it. Um, but there's another difference, which is the lawsuits that were successful, the Supreme Court decision against the two uh, universities was based on Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. And for corporations, it's under Title VII. And the standards are a little different. So that may help. And DEI is, I think, broader than affirmative action. Affirmative action is one specific part of DEI efforts. And so I think it's going to be harder to shut down DEI efforts. At least that's my hope. With this Supreme Court, who knows? Well, that's definitely true. And I think the point about it being broader is a good one. So, Barb, one reason that we're seeing these law firms do that is because state attorneys general have been very vocal about what the implication of that affirmative action case uh, could be for employers. But the reaction, the vocal reaction is split on party lines. What have they been saying and what does it mean? Yeah. So, you know, when the Supreme Court decision came out this summer, very shortly thereafter, um, a joint letter was put together by attorneys general around the country who are Republicans. And they said, hey, businesses, be on notice. You could face, quote, serious legal consequences for discriminating against different groups, even for benign purposes with DEI programs. So, you know, corporate America which is very white and very male and wants very much to improve their diversity because, as Jill said, it's good for business. It's good for the bottom line. Customers, consumers, clients all want more diverse decision makers because they make better decisions and are working hard to try to improve their diversity. They might have uh, recruiting programs. They might have support groups for uh, various constituencies who find themselves, you know, uh, alone or a, a gross minority in an organization. Uh, and so there are a lot of programs in corporate America designed to provide that support. These Republican attorneys general say uh, that you might be discriminating and that there might be serious legal consequences for your DEI programs. But conversely, we saw the Democratic attorneys general around the country write their own letter that said, um, to the contrary, we support you. We support your efforts to take diversity into consideration in hiring and retaining and training and other kinds of things. And if you uh, want to continue your important DEI work, you know, we will back you up and don't let these politicians intimidate you into rolling back the progress that you have made. And, you know, these letters were sent out to the CEOs of Fortune 100 companies. So the, the battleground has been set. And, you know, if you're the general counsel of one of these corporations, you, on the one hand, want to advance the important DEI goals, but on the other, you don't want your company to be sued. And so, you know, they're, they're really on a little tightrope here. 
Yeah, it's quite amazing. And I want to um, ask you both, I'll start with you, Jill. You mentioned that a lot of things so far that uh, uh, former Attorney General Lynch and, and uh, Secretary Johnson have been involved with have been sort of broad. You know, there's not a lot of specifics <laughs> in it. What can be done? What can um, they do as practicing private practice attorneys now defending these businesses? And what can Democratic attorneys general do um, in the effort to try to protect these programs and workplaces? Well, first, I think they can get involved early by helping to formulate policies that will meet the standards and that will continue the DEI efforts to broaden the workplace. And so they may have to adapt certain of the rules that are in place. There have already been some lawsuits brought against law firms who have mentorship programs that are limited to a particular group, have fellowships um, that are for a specific group, and maybe they'll have to work on how to make that not be vulnerable to a lawsuit from these conservative legal organizations that are bringing these lawsuits. Um, and then, of course, they can be prepared to defend and to make some of the arguments that I mentioned that are why this is different than the two affirmative action cases. And remember, in the affirmative action decision, West Point was accepted because they really needed a diverse workforce. Now, I, you know, I worked in the Pentagon. They do need a diverse workforce, but I've worked in corporations and they need a, a diverse workforce. And the voices of uh, women and minorities are very valuable to the company in expanding their reach. So I, I think that these law firms are doing the right thing, developing this practice. Um, Jenner was a participant in the Muldrow case, which I mentioned in our last episode as one that if I, we had been able to take a second case, I would have mentioned that one, which was against the city of St. Louis for a transfer of a police officer. Um, so I, I think they can start developing specific plans of action to continue to increase the diversity, to make sure that it is a welcoming culture uh, to all uh, to all people, and then to defend them if they get sued. Yeah, and I should mention that the law firm where uh, Johnson and Lynch are is Paul Weiss. Barb, I want to ask you that question. What can private attorneys and state attorneys general do? But also, it's worth noting that uh, several corporations have reached out to the Biden administration yeah. saying, give us guidance, like tell us what yeah. to do. What yeah. do you think the Biden administration should say here as well? First, first, much respect to Jay Johnson and Loretta Lynch. They are both forces. And I'm really glad to see them getting behind this effort. Whatever they do, they will do it superbly. I'm certain of that. Um, but you're right that um, uh, there's some groups, including a group that represents the tech industry called the Chamber of Progress, that have asked the Biden administration to issue guidance. So one of the things that the Justice Department does from time to time is they issue these things they call dear colleague letters. And so, you know, they push them out maybe to higher education in certain fields or they, you know, push them out to various constituencies around the country. And so one of the things they could do is issue guidance describing, you know, we have now studied these cases on higher ed that came out in the summer. And it is our view that it would be lawful in compliance to do X, Y, and Z. Now, that does not have the force of law, of course, until a case is tested and goes to court uh, and a decision is made. But 
it could give some assurance to companies that if they're following that guidance, then they would have some legal protection if they were to be found in violation of the law down the road. Because as Stacey Abrams has said, one of the points of these letters is not because they're certain they're right, but they have a chilling effect on corporate America. Because, you know, if you're a general counsel of uh, some large corporation, your goal is to keep your company out of litigation and to avoid litigation risk. And if you say, well, if we do this program, we might uh, run afoul of something some Republican attorney general wants to do to make his name. We might be the subject of a lawsuit. My advice is to be risk averse and to stand down. But if there is guidance out there by the Biden administration through the Justice Department saying that, you know, we've studied the issue and we think these kinds of programs are lawful, and then you comply with those kinds of programs, then you at least have a good faith defense that what you were doing was lawful, even if it turns out after the fact that it wasn't and could perhaps help you minimize any damages. So it would give some comfort and help minimize that chilling effect. And we have reached the part of the show, which we really, truly like best. And that is questions from our listeners. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com or thread or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If you're on threads, make sure you tag sistersinlaw and uh, so that we are sure to see it. If we don't get to your questions during the show, keep an eye out on your feeds throughout the week. We answer as many of your questions as we can. Let's start first uh, with Jenny from Fresno, who asked about some breaking news that was happening as we were recording. What is the significance of the guilty plea by Scott Hall in Georgia? Barb, can you give us an answer to that? Yeah, so this is big news. One of the defendants, now he's certainly a lower level defendant, has entered a guilty plea in the Georgia RICO case. He's one of the 19 in the case against Donald Trump. His role was that that group uh, involved with Sidney Powell in Coffee County to tamper with voting equipment as part of this overall plot to subvert the outcome of the election. But it's huge. Uh, you know, we always knew that, like, somebody would crack and then the, the defendants would start uh, pleading guilty. I think this could be oftentimes it just takes one and it opens the floodgates. But he agreed not only to plead guilty, but he's going to cooperate and testify against others. He's pleading to not the RICO felony, but a, a series of misdemeanors. But he also gave a recorded statement to prosecutors and promised to write a letter of apology to the Georgia voters. And now instead of having a case with him on the other side of the V, he is now coming over to uh, Team Fonnie Willis and will be testifying for the government in this case. So really important early development in this case. I, I expect we'll see more. On the other side of the V would be a great name for a band. I, I think we should start that up. <laughs> oh, maybe that's an episode title. <laughs> and uh, our next question comes from Don and Leslin in Olympia, Washington. They ask, what is the difference between Pled and pleaded. I love this question so much. It like hits my heart. I recall hearing pled for many years. Now it seems like I hear pleaded more often. For example, Trump pleaded not guilty or Trump pled not guilty to the charges, which is correct, Jill. Well, I am so glad you asked this ah. question, Dawn and Leslin, right. because it really, as it did with Kim, touches my heart because I have grown up with the word pled. 
the defendant pled guilty. But nowadays, in all reporting, it's called pleaded. A stupid word, pled is perfectly good. And as far as I know, there is no difference except that it's a matter of grammar now to say pleaded, which sounds so awkward to me. So I often slip and say pled guilty. Can I chime in? Yes. I grew up in the I grew up in the world of pleaded. And I was told it is plead for present tense, pleaded for past tense, and has pled for past participle. What about you, Kim? What's your preference? Plead or pled or pled? Pleaded or pled? It's never pled. It's always pleaded in legalese. It is a matter of generations, Kimberly. (laughs) I'm sorry. When When I practiced, if I said pled, I'd have been laughed out of a courtroom. You said pleaded. Yes. Oh, me too. Yeah, you go, sister. Whole- pleaded. It's all about pleaded. Thank you, it's sister. All- and our third question this episode comes from Zach in Cape Town, South Africa, uh, who asks, how often does the SCOTUS hear cases in which they have original jurisdiction? Ooh, a nice nerdy wonky question. Are they forced to hear the case or can they refuse? What would such a case look like? That is great. So um, a lot of our listeners in America may not know that the Supreme Court has something called original jurisdiction. In addition to granting cases that they agree to take, there are certain cases that only the Supreme Court can hear as a trial court, which is unusual, and they don't have it, excuse me, they don't have an option to turn them away. And those are disputes between, usually between states or between also like heads of states. So if there are like consulates that are fighting or something, you know, there's some sort of uh, high ranking officials that have some dispute between them, it would go straight to the uh, Supreme Court. From covering the court for a long time, usually, a handful of original jurisdiction jurisdiction cases are on the docket each year. All of them, I've never seen this, the officials, the the dispute between officials, but it's usually between states over things like water rights, like where is the water boundary between you know New York and New Jersey or something like that, uh, or rights to water or land disputes. But both of the parties, it will be New York versus New Jersey, and the Supreme Court is the trial court in those cases. And that happens very rarely. And thank you for that very wonky question. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joanne Banks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. And remember, you can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them, X them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. Please support this week's sponsors, Moink, Osea Malibu, and Kitsch. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them because they really make our show happen. And you can go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our shirts, totes, and other goodies as it's getting cool. Hoodies are a great idea. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. What do you mean my flight's been delayed? Oh, no. (laughs) I'm sorry, but at least you'll have enough time to stay with us for the whole podcast.